Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Today, I talk with Stella Lupershore, the work reframer. Stella is a career HR professional who, interestingly, got her start in this field by implementing SAP HR because, as she was told at the time, Heck, she was the girl on the project, so she had to do that part of the work. She parlayed those HR skills into bigger jobs across PwC, IBM, TIAA, Kraft, and finally retiring from Fidelity in 2016. But it was a New York Times article on the unemployment of women ages 50 to 65 that launched her into her third act. As an HR professional, she saw how the systems and processes were unintentionally designed to prevent these women from getting jobs. So she decided to do something about it. Today, she is what she calls the chief reframer in several roles. First, as a head of a nonprofit, The Amazing Community, that helps women get back to work. Second, as a lecturer on this topic at NYU. And third, as the head of her own consulting company that helps companies design age-friendly workplaces. Joined by a lively conversation with Stella as she talks about her humble beginnings in Moldova, as well as offers great advice on how to work through ageism in the workplace, whether you're an employer or women seeking work. Stella, welcome to Third Act. Liz, thank you so much for being such a great host and welcoming me to your podcast. Well, it's great to have another friend of the high-performing Bev Teruli, another, I should say, another overachieving friend of hers. So must be in the water there at NYU since you're both professors there. Absolutely. And we both live in the same town, so that's another (laughs) destination to look into. (laughs) <laughs> so Bev, if you haven't listened, Bev was one of my guests in season one. And uh, so she's been great at introducing me to a, a lot of really wonderful upcoming guests. You're probably the first person as well who is from Moldova. And so I want to kind of start there. Um, I'm pretty certain that most of our listeners are not up to date on their Moldavian history. And I'll make sure, is it Moldova or Moldavia? Moldova. Moldova. Okay, I had it wrong. Anyway, but we're not up to date on that history and its connection to the Soviet Union, which is important to your story. So take us, give us a little history lesson. It is the place that I grew up that doesn't exist as a country anymore. It is a language that I spoke that doesn't exist anymore. And to me, it's a cornerstone inside that I had when I realized that because it made me relate to the reality and the environment and the circumstances in a very different way. And the conclusion was everything is changeable for the most part, except for taxes and death, probably. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's but true. I learned when I moved to the U.S. Um, but a lot of things are contextual. A lot of things could shift and could change. So the more we can stay focused on our path and our value system, the more the opportunities can shape the direction in which you pursue. And Moldova, it's a little sliver of land uh, that is nested between Ukraine and Romania. It used to be part of the Romania as a territory. And during the 1940s, there was a pact called Molotov-Lebentrop, who declared that Moldova is going to be annexed to the Soviet Union and will be part of the federation, so to speak. And it became a small republic. And uh, during the Soviet Union dissolution, it went independent, and of course, it's still an independent democratic country, but it's really tiny and it's known for its wine, for its food, for its welcoming population, and obviously a source of great 
talent that immigrated. And I'm not part of it, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. Yes, you are. So you studied math and computer science, but ended up pretty early in your career in HR, but not traditionally the way we think about it. So tell us about that. (laughs) It is the question that every HR professional who will hear this will cringe. So I was told, hey, you're our girl, so you can go learn SAP HR because we are not going to implement it, but we will need somebody with the integration skills and knowledge of all the the data structure. So why don't you go and learn SAP HR and then uh, you'll be part of the team? They thought that the HR component, even though it was software, would be more naturally akin to a girl. Absolutely. Uh, Isn't that the case? It's so funny. (laughs) That never happened to me. And when you told me that story of prepping, I was I'm still laughing about it because it's so absurd. But keep going. It's paid off for you. It paid off because, uh, well, first learning SAP was a shock in itself, right. but learning HR on top of that was double shock. And I finally realized how much I enjoyed this topic because as, as an employee, I could relate to it as uh, somebody who does a lot of technology implementation I could see how my work could impact the work environment of so many. So it became one of those pivots that happen and uh, uh, you, you never look back. And I made it my uh, my mission pursuit to be part of the world of work and where people operate and whatever capacity I can support that be that as a consultant, as an internal HR practitioner, as a teacher at the moment, it became the focus of my work for, for the rest of my career. After your humble beginning at Gazprom doing <laughs> SAP HR, you, as you said, you became a lifelong career professional. So take us on a brief tour of some of the highlights of your career quickly. It was one of those ongoing discoveries. How to me, it started all this custom system development and I came to the conclusion that if you can only automate a bunch of things that already are consistent across multiple projects, then the rest of it will be significantly easier. So that's how I ended up in SAP in the uh, ERP solutions. Then I said, look, if you can only change the processes, then the systems will follow, all the configuration can be uh, enabling that. So I ended up in process improvement because that felt kind of the next Mm -hmm. up the value chain. Then I realized that the process, it's sufficient technology is, is, is good, but if you change the service delivery model, then you can update the process and you change the technology, et cetera. And I started doing a lot of service delivery transformation work. And lastly, I realized that if you can only change some of the strategic mindset of how a child approaches work environment, then the rest of the service delivery, the process technology will follow. It allowed me, it was more of a curiosity thing, but it became a natural progression of both the complexity of the work and the skills that I was acquiring. And really the most fascinating part of my career was after I moved from the management consulting side into the internal role at IBM, and I had the privilege of working on uh, some future of work projects that Mm. my mind completely exploded because I could see a lot of the dots connecting for me. This Mm -hmm. is how technology is shaping our behavior differently. This is how the expectations of the workers are changing. This is how the leadership skills of the future may be very different than what we're seeing today. More importantly, I saw that analytics is really an incredible superpower and can give HR professionals a very different outlook, a different set of insights. So that's where the pivot back into the analytics and math and computer science happened. Um, So it kind of full circle allowed me to 
connect all the dots, including the HR component of it. So I have to ask, given the days that we're in today, when you were at IBM doing future of work, was there any contemplation of a global pandemic that would keep everybody working from home for 18 months? (laughs) In fact, we were, and I was engaged in the project called Pandemic Preparedness. Really? What year was this? (laughs) Back in 2007, I want to say. Wow, that's prescient. And there was a, a whole... A set of activities, there was uh, task forces, there was a lot of assessment and reflection and preparedness done. That's where the word essential employees came. And by the time pandemic here happens, like, oh, I have, we have the textbook. We know exactly what uh, steps need to be done. And I, I checked in with a few of my former colleagues at IBM and they said, yeah, n- not significant changes. We were ready and we were able to uh, adapt and, and go on. That is terrific. Well, that was good planning on their part. You ended your sort of main corporate career at Fidelity in 2016. What did you think you were going to do next at that point? At that point, I really was reflecting on all of this future of work analytics, the fact that a lot of individuals are pursuing solo career. So career is becoming more as an individual pursuit as opposed to a company-related journey. But that point of view for me was always theoretical. I would talk about it from, well, this is the research I read. This is the paper I, I looked at, as opposed to being in the middle of it and seeing what is it that it feels like to be that a solopreneur, entrepreneur, what kind of skills you need, how organizations are treating you, how easy to find the support and the resources you need in order to start your business and find your accountant and do business development and do delivery. So it became a pursuit for me to understand what it's like to be on that other side. So in 2016, I took the leap of faith and yet again, never looked back. To me, the opportunity was to look at the workplace from a broader systemic point of view and not only learn what the independent and gig economy might bring you and what it feels like, but also allowed to influence it from the outside. I think when you're an internal employee, you have to react and be part of the context, right? You have to follow the norms. You have to have certain performance goals and certain point of views that are not necessarily allowing you to express what you literally think. And, and you cannot do it as well because it's, it's a different set of goals and motivation and rewards that support it. You read an article that talked about, New York Times article that talked about half the women ages 50 to 65 being unemployed, and it inspired you. So talk about that. What happened? <laughs> oh, as a, as anyone who is really uh, geeking out from reading analytics and doing research and diving deep into a specific topic, when I was transi- transitioning out of the corporate world, I was reading everything I could get my hand on. It's like, what's going on? Is it me? Is it midlife crisis? Is it <laughs> and it's- right. It is so interesting to realize that I was picking up all these books about life transitions, about pivots people make and third acts they pursue. And it became very obvious that it's a it's a common theme for women. We tend to make very different decisions and career choices. We tend to deprioritize our promotions and relocations in 
pursuit of supporting our spouses' careers. We take time off to have children or care for our ailing parents. So our life is a lot more involved with pivots and, and it, number one, it provides for a richer experience. Number two, having been on the HR side and having seen how a lot of the decisions are being made from policy perspective, from, you know, who gets promoted, who gets hired, who gets put on retention plan, all of that goes against us. So the article that you're referring to was a revelation because it kind of encapsulated all of those aha moments from the research into one big conclusion that women as they age, they are increasingly pushed out or they have diminished access to employment opportunity, which given their spotty employment to begin with, given their longevity, and you know, the most likely will outlive their spouse, most likely will outlive their uh, savings. And just because their social security will be significantly smaller, it's a matter of financial security for a huge part of our population. So that statistic that women between 55 and 65 constitute half of the long-term unemployment just completely shocked me. Number one, the fact that, how is that possible? Just a very small sliver of 10 years makes such a big difference. But then when you think about it, right, statistics or labor statistics cares less about anyone who is not within the working age population bracket. So anyone over 65 kind of not necessarily tracked as closely. Yeah, they don't count anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Right. At the same time, 45 is probably the time when you go through this transition, children leave the house, or you decide to return back to the labor force, or you get divorced. So different reasons push you to come back. But then you're facing all of this subtle and sometimes not so subtle barriers to be able to re-enter. In some cases, this is your outdated network that maybe you didn't have the chance to nurture while you're out, maybe outdated skills or perceived outdated skills that may not match necessarily what the uh, employers are looking today. Or it could be even your own self-imposed limitations because many issues, it's in our head. We're not going to apply to that job just because we're not 120% match. Or it has certain keywords that may tell us, well, that's not us. Like uh, we're looking for a self-starter or we're looking for somebody who is eager or data ninja. So all of these little cues that HR as well as managers or organizations in general put in some of these job descriptions that not only limit certain people because the recruitment process is a check the the check boxes, right? You match or you don't match. It's simple as that. But also a lot of women self-exclude themselves from that game altogether just because they don't see themselves there. But you did something about it. Yes. So what'd you do? (laughs) I love this story. So instead of sitting around feeling sorry for yourself, you said, I'm going to do something. What was it? The first idea was, wow, I need to maybe run a job fair, raise some awareness and solve the problem. Easy, right? And the more I started having conversations with people about this topic, because I would talk to anyone who would be willing to talk to me about the topic of aging. It's like, is is it real? Is it, is it really impacting? And then you start hearing all of these stories, heartbreaking stories. Some had good positive outcomes, but some of them were not so good. And uh, in some cases, people just completely got discouraged and gave up on searching. And you realize how big of an issue, and it's more of a societal issue, aging is or ageism in the workplace. And it's not only that we as humans 
create these societal norms. Media is perpetuating it. We ourselves are amplifying it by saying, well, I'm aging myself or I'm going to date myself completely by referring to that movie or that movie. Like, there are a lot of little subtle as well as internalized ageist tendency that we as a society have. The bigger problem that I see is as we adopt a lot of the technology analytics and artificial intelligence solutions, we are codifying a lot of those behaviors and biases into the decision-making engines that these tools have. So it's a time, a critical time in a, in a history where, number one, ageism is one of the last isms that has been tackled. Number two, we really need to be as HR professionals, deeply involved and engaged in the conversation of the adoption of these tools so we don't perpetuate or even amplify the age bias in the workplace. Tell us about the amazing community. So those conversations led to the next and the next and the next and in the right people came along, the right conversations happened and it became officially a nonprofit organization called Amazing Community. And if anyone wants to look us up, it's Amazing Thought Community. That's the website. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. Excellent. And there is an, an intentional choice of the name. Number one, aging as a word has carries a baggage with it. But if you replace G was M-A-Z, you end up with amazing because we're bringing amazing women back into the labor market, not aging. And then the notion of community is so important and close and at the core to what we do. It is really not us doing something to women over 45. It's us, women over 45, supporting each other and navigating together the challenges and the pivots and the transitions of the current modern environment was the emphasis on technology. We do believe technology has a lot of opportunities and opens up new spaces, new ways of doing your work as a freelancer, right? Or whatever career pathway you pursue. So we emphasize community and supporting each other, but also focusing on the technology and how that can bring in new skills as well as new job opportunities. How many women have you had come through this program over the last few years? We had multiple ways of engaging. We had multiple programming opportunities. So if you think about the personas we support, we have women who are just returning from a career absence. So with a lot of those women, we work with their resume. We help them think about their LinkedIn profile and how you update that, how you network nowadays. With the second persona, we are women who are pivoting. So they may be or may not be employed, but they don't want to do what they've done before. So this requires reimagining what the next phase might look like, how, uh, maybe working as a coach to help you create a plan and, and have accountability. And then the third is women who already know what they want to do. They want to go solopreneur. They want to start their own business and they need a, a very different set of support. So across the board, I would say we touched probably over, over 500 women uh, over the past few years in different capacity and different way of engaging for whatever they need at that moment in time. It's interesting. You've got a really interesting perspective given the career that you had in corporate HR and now working with these people who, women who need jobs. With all the discussion right now of employers needing employees, why is it so hard for hiring managers to find job-seeking women? And what do we need to do about that? Oh, you ask 
the best question. Well, thank you. (laughs) It is so fascinating to, to just think about the labor shortages we're experiencing and the unwillingness to change certain practices that are so ingrained in our organization and how we find talent. Just think about talent acquisition. Women over 45, they may have a very different need for flexibility. Not to say that uh, younger women, you know, especially childbearing women, at childbearing age, they don't need flexibility. Uh, Certain women, they, they don't want to necessarily work at the same capacity. Maybe they realize they don't want to have a high stress, high intensity job because they've done that before or they they have parents at home to take care of or they do not want to commute because that eats up a lot of time in their daily schedule. And pandemic proof to everyone, many jobs can be done remotely. So, But the insistence of complying and trying to form these job descriptions in a way that will exclude predominantly women just because of those preferences that goes against the great talent pool that managers can tap into. You know, it requires a little bit of work, right? You need to uh, coordinate and orchestrate work. You need to have different kinds of relationship. But this is a talent pool that has balanced so many balls in the air, has run so many projects, has done and knows emotional intelligence, can resolve conflicts, can integrate the team and bring that sense of stability. There's a lot of traits that typically don't get captured in those job descriptions. So we hire for skills. And let's face it, a lot of those skills may never need to be part of the job to begin with, right? But that automatically disqualifies some of the potential candidates. So if I'm a hiring manager and I'm listening to this podcast, what are some of the things that I should be doing or thinking about to make sure that I don't eliminate that group of women? A couple of uh, ideas. Uh, Some of them are more technical. Some of them are more philosophical. Look at the job descriptions. It could be as simple as critically assessing all the requirements and saying, is this really important for this role? Will this person not be able to function and deliver on their primary responsibility without it? If it's a maybe, then chuck it. Take it out. Take it out. Lower the educational requirements and credential requirements. Many times we require some of the degrees for jobs that have nothing to do with with that education. Look at the language in the job descriptions. There are tons of tools nowadays that allow you to automate that process to say these keywords may have a certain gender bias, so therefore you may want to replace them and you give suggested replacement. But philosophically, one thing that I'm I'm seeing and I'm hearing in some of the conversations at the conference board where I, I have, uh, I'm running a couple of councils and, and just in general in the research I'm doing is all of this push for skills-driven planning. Everything is at the skills level. There's talent marketplaces that are being adopted. There's upskilling solutions and platforms. And it makes me wonder, humans are not a bag of skills, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> we have a lot of other things going on too. Exactly. So if you are, if you started with a job description, which has a lot of limitations and problems to begin with, and now we've even further down breaking that uh, responsibility, it becomes another impossible exercise to find the perfect match. What if we hire somebody who maybe has 50 or okay, 80% of what you need for this job? And then give them the rest of the space and tools to learn the rest. 
technical things you can learn. If the right fit happens, if the right attitude is there, you can figure out the rest of the upskilling and learning. So I will, I wondered how the timing of the, the decision-making needs to be made that, you know, if you're looking for somebody that matches 100%, if they already had that experience, number one, they may be unaffordable and you may not be competitive in terms of what you're offering them. Number two, they've already then done that. They will be bored. But creating that space for, for stretch and, and uh, learning opportunities will, will go a long way and probably opened up a whole new talent pool, including women in the latter part of their career who are interested in these opportunities. So now let's flip it over. If I'm a woman who's over 45, I've maybe been out of the workforce, so if I want to pivot, what should I be doing differently to make myself attractive to an employer today? Number one, it's a mindset. It's a attitude. It's important not to get discouraged by all the rejections or how the ATS solutions are excluding or deprioritizing our resume or interviews that didn't go well. I think by this time, we put ourselves in a lot of uh, containers and everything that it's outside that, it, it just becomes unattainable for us. So mindset and saying, well, I'll stay curious. Maybe I cannot find the program manager or project manager role for ERP implementation because it's it's very competitive and it, it, they're looking for younger. But they can be a project manager for chatbot development and learning a little bit more about what chatbots are and what you do with them does not require you to go to a, to get a degree or a deep school. There's so much you can learn online. There are a lot of free resources on the MOOCs that you can very quickly get yourself up to speed with the vocabulary and start playing with it. Number two, it is important to have presence, right? A lot, it's about you shaping and curating your persona. Let's face it, if you're not on LinkedIn nowadays, nobody is going to believe that you exist. So it's unfortunate. <laughs> so shaping what that profile on whatever platform you decide to be to call us, it's important. And having the right kind of keywords and understanding how the process, the hiring process happens, how these search engines match the keywords in your resume to the keywords in the job description. So a lot of little, very practical steps that you can put yourself out there and make yourself compelling to either recruiters or search engines. More importantly than, than not is networking, building and nurturing your relationships. And not only when you're looking for a job, but in general and on an ongoing basis, it has to be that. And I'm sure everybody seen or heard this uh, fact that a lot of the jobs don't come from your closest connections. They come from second or tertiary connections. So keeping those warm and ongoing is important too. More importantly, when you do show up uh, for an interview, right, do your homework. You need to understand what the company purpose is and make a decision up front. Be very honest with yourself. Are you aligned to that purpose? Because if you are feeling kind of, I'm just looking for a job for the sake of an income, but I'm willing to put up. That's one conversation. But if you're going to look at the organization, well, they didn't give me the job and they don't align to my purpose and it's their fault. You'll show up that way too in, in subsequent conversations. So it's a mindset and it's a kind of attitude that uh, needs to be 
tailored to, to your search. And sometimes also revisiting and critical assessing your priorities. Do you really want that job? We had some women who came to us like, we're looking for a job, we're looking for a job. And then by the end of uh, working with us, they say, I'm looking actually for work, which is a very different conversation. Oh, it's true. Right. And that can take shape in, you know, partnership and collaboration with other women, going independent, starting a podcast, whatever that is that gives you meaning and gives you energy. And then there is something about reaching that point because it builds a very new positive uh, momentum towards bigger, bigger connections, better relationships, et cetera. So I was looking at an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal, I was just trying to find it, about the pandemic fundamentally changing the way women go to work. Is this a good time for women to pivot? Yes. You're probably referring to the one where women are feeling restless. and Yeah. Absolutely. And I think every day is a good time for pivot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> At least that's my point of view. Okay. Uh, because if you dwell for too long in one career that may not bring you satisfaction or you feel you're not developing yourself, you will feel internally not satisfied and fulfilled. And then, of course, from the labor market perspective, you may not necessarily stay as current or as compelling. So restless is good if it's channeled in the right path in the right way. And what's my first step in thinking of doing something new? What do I do? Of course, there are many coaches you can work with or many um, kind of exercises you can go through. But a lot of times it's going internally, going introspectively, right? What gives you joy? What gives you satisfaction? What is really, what do you define as value, employment value? Because when we think about our relationship with organization, depending on your life stage, it may be different. When you just start your career, you want to build the upward trajectory. You want to earn money. You want to build skills to form a relationship, gain status. But as we get over the arch of uh, or the pinnacle of uh, our midlife, different things make more sense to us, right? Maybe we want to belong to a community that wants to make an impact jointly. Maybe we want to just be able to come do our work and leave so we can do our, our, you know, extracurricular activities outside the work. And by the way, this is not just older people. My daughter, 25, says the same things like, I, I love my work, but, you know, this is my way of earning an income, not a purpose and something that I'm willing to work 24 by 7. And my kids say the same thing. I'm like, what? You should be working around the clock. Yeah. So totally different. Yeah. Totally different mindset. The more we can observe maybe for a week or a month, whatever time we want to give ourselves, saying every day, what am I doing that really makes me sing? Because there may be something behind that. Is there a way to transfer that or transition that into a business opportunity? Do you love talking to people? Start a podcast. Do you love coaching <laughs> others? Become a coach. Go get certified and uh, support others in their transitions. And more importantly, pay attention to your own transition story because there is a business in that. Ah, that's a great point. <laughs> so you also have a consulting company called Reframe Work. So what type of work do you do with Reframe? I focus on workplace experience design. If you think about how our relationship with uh, technology and big brands, you know, let's say how Amazon changed how we shop or how Apple changed how we interact with technology and devices. The, the superpower behind that is human-centered design. 
It's really looking at the journey of that user or consumer from the point when they wake up until they make the purchasing decision or whatever it is that these brands want you to do. The same kind of thinking is starting to come to the world of work and world of HR. So we as workers are becoming consumers of this experience. So how might we use technology, analytics, and design thinking to reshape it and change it? So that's pretty much the core of my work. I just love my guests who see a problem in their second act like you did and solve it in their third act. So at this point, what are you most proud of? Of course, amazing community is one of the most, the the pride because on one side, it gives a lot of fulfillment. On the flip side, it's another thing that we as women find it much easier to relate and say, my life has no problems. I have no issues, especially when you listen to some of the stories of, of these women. So it ex- externalizes and it eliminates all your inner issues that you're dealing with. So mm-hmm. psychologically. Yeah, you listen to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other big moment of pride for me is my opportunity to teach at NYU. What class do you teach there? I teach digital workplace design. And to me, it was one of those aha moments where you cannot blame HR for not being technically savvy or analytics driven or nimble or agile or design thinking. Nobody taught them to be that way. So to me, it's like, okay, I think there is an opportunity here (laughs) to be solved. And um, seeing the talent that comes through the program and then just seeing how the light bulbs go off and for them, it's like, ooh, I'm going to do this differently. It, It just, it's beyond the satisfaction level one can imagine as a professional. Yeah. I know. I'm a teacher professor, too, and I just I get so much out of it. So what's next for the amazing community and for your consulting business? So amazing community, we are getting really deep into some of the technical work. So we definitely uh, will continue to focus on women and supporting them through the job transitions and figuring out what's next for them. But one big project that we are uh, undertaking at the moment is helping women navigate the the resources and the content that it's available. So when you think about a woman who just lost a job or has given up after two years of searching, it becomes emotionally taxing and they go inwards. We have some women who come to our events who don't speak, don't show, uh, don't turn on their video just because there is a stigma, a shame. So we want to help meet them uh, where they are because it takes a little bit of a warming up to build some trust and build that openness. So we want to build a chatbot that interacts with them and helps guide them to different resources we have. So think of it as a a, a triage team, but now it's your digital friend who says, all right, where are you right now? Are you looking for coaching? Are you looking for job platforms that you can find roles? Are you looking for just a community where you can talk about some of these issues. And then based on that, we can route them to the right resources. So to us, that's such an exciting, both use of technology, but also an opportunity to learn through the data of how women make decisions and how we may be able to fulfill certain gaps that currently we're not uh, addressing in, in what they're looking for. Oh, that's a great idea. So I almost titled this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because I feel like I'm not done yet. So what aren't you done with yet? Oh, gosh, I am definitely not done with teaching. I'm definitely not done with the consulting. I feel we're really at the early stages of adoption of this workplace experience mindset. HR, IT, space planning, analytics, 
there is a convergence of those functions and you really need to have an integrated conversation and focus it on the worker and worker experience and looking at it from a worker lens as well as from the life stage lens. Because right now we have a lot of standardized, all for the processes of both managing risks on behalf of the companies or keeping the costs low, as opposed to looking at the humans as a unique differentiation. Uh, Talent is really what makes the organization. Not a box of skills. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So to me, it's rethinking and helping organizations get deeper into this workplace experience as as a solid practice of transforming organizations going forward. Yeah. And, you know, we had Chip Conley on who's wrote the book Wisdom at Work, and he talked about the same thing. It's just companies have got to adjust. Uh, There's going to be more people aging, going out of the workforce later. It's a great book called The 100 Year Life about people are born today. They're going to live 100 years. They're going to work into their 80s, which is frightening to me. But companies are going to definitely have to adjust. So, Stella, thank you so much for joining me on Third Act and for all you do for this demographic of women. In addition to looking at the amazing community online, where can we find you online? I am on LinkedIn, Stella Lupushor, Stella was one L. I am on Twitter, Slupusho, S. Lupusho. And I am obviously on my website. You can reach me at reframe.work. All right, we'll publish all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, pleasure. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.